Hello and welcome to this special memorial edition of Nightlight. Our dear friend and close associate Dwight Pryor is with the Lord. And uh, I give more explanation and background information on his passing in the letter portion of your mailing this month. But I want to give a little bit of explanation and introduction to what you're about to hear. This recording was taken from a uh, a previous recording that I did with Dwight uh, that was uh, done for his Havarim audience a little over a year ago. It was done in two parts, and we have edited it down to the uh, format that you're receiving here. And uh, it's rather self-explanatory, but even though it was aimed at addressing sexuality and healing of sexual uh, issues, the Holy Spirit wove his intention more into it, which ended up pointing us back to God as our Father. Something that Dwight was particularly anointed to address. And so I want you to understand that this is an edited portion of what was a larger uh, address, but we have edited it down to the subject that we believe the Holy Spirit really wanted to be addressed, which is the Father Heart of God. So please go with us now into that uh, interview, and uh, God bless you. Thank you for listening. Uh, I'd like to begin this discussion that we're going to have by reading a text from 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. In verse 23, now the very God of peace sanctify you throughout. I pray God that your whole spirit and soul and body may be kept blameless unto the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Faithful is he which calleth you, which also shall do it. What we're going to be talking about in this time of discussion really relates to this issue of the sanctification of our whole being, body, soul, and spirit, of our whole marriage as husband and wife, male and female in covenant unity, of the sanctification of our families, and the sanctification of our communities of faith. And by God's grace, hopefully, the sanctification of our nation. Clay made a statement uh, some time ago that uh, captured uh, Karen's attention. And uh, she wrote it down and, and shared it with me. And uh, the gist of it was that in all the counseling that you do and what you have done for so many years now, you find that consistently one of the root problems is in fact the Christian separation or alienation from the Hebraic roots of our faith. Maybe you can kind of state that more in your own words. This is such a large subject, but uh, I think uh, most of our listeners w would probably have examples they could give of their own of encountering well-meaning, committed believers in Yeshua whose lifestyle or behavior or practice is more informed by uh, even pagan point of view. Right. Uh, let me just give one for instance. It's a very large for instance, but a, a, a wrong view of God, a wrong view of human nature, resulting in a uh, exacting, punitive child rearing. Yeah. That's that's a very large example. Right. Uh, in th that one statement I just made encompasses so many huge subjects. Any one of them could take up yeah, all our time. Absolutely. But every dimension, if we're separated from our Hebraic roots, in some sense, we easily have a distorted view of God. 
certainly the God of the Hebrew Bible. There's no doubt. And the repercussions of that go down to every level. Now, we're going to talk about that at some, in some detail about what it would mean to be restored to a wholeness in an authentically biblical view of children, raising children, of marriage, and other issues. But um, perhaps, Clay, there are people who are hearing you for the first time. Uh, they're not familiar with your ministry. Um, let me give just a word of explanation. You and I first met now um, some 20 years ago at a conference that was being held by Leanne Payne, uh, a well-known author and uh, with a very powerful ministry, pastoral care ministries. And at that time and for several years, you served on that team of ministers with her. And uh, now, for over 20 years, you have been uh, in ministry, what some call the healing of the soul. Um, you've ministered powerfully. You and your wife, Mary, have ministered powerfully to me over the years. And with the help of the Holy Spirit, brought to light areas of uh, deficiency, of brokenness, of distortion, within my own soul uh, that continues that process of healing. But a lot of the impetus for this came out of your own brokenness. So when did this uh, turnaround come in your life where you begin to understand the dynamics going on in your soul? Um, it was a, a gradual progression because anytime you hang around with God, you're going to learn truth. <laughs> You know, and, and I loved God, and I was afraid of God. You're reading the scriptures all and the time. I'm reading the scriptures all the time, and I'm speaking. Uh, boy, this can be a long story, but I'm, I'm going to try to give you the edited version. But uh, I was in Los Angeles, and I had to fly from L.A. to Charlotte. And I had had a very successful ministry in Southern California. This was about the time that John Wimber's ministry was beginning to, to emerge uh, on a local level. The, the vineyard movement was in its youngest stages right uh and uh, uh i was hearing about the move of the spirit in southern california but i got on the airplane to fly to charlotte and the holy spirit spoke to me and he said i'm about to be accused in your ears it was very distinct mm. thought, what could this mean in a few minutes a man i'd never laid eyes on stepped into the plane sat down next to me looked at my bible and under what I can only call a demonic anointing, for lack of a better term, he began to pummel me with accusations against the goodness of God. He began to tell horrible stories of people in his family that had suffered. Wow. And, 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 and uh, then uh, aiming all of his ridicule at God toward me, uh, he said, uh, so this is, this is your God that you seem to be so enamored with. And he got up and went, uh, went over to his seat. <laughs> Now, his words were not anything I hadn't heard before, but words spoken under a certain kind of demonic unction left a claw in my mind. By the time the plane landed in Charlotte, I was absolutely convinced that the plane was going to crash because I was on it. Wow. Uh, uh, God was going to kill me and rid the world of my uh, uh, blasphemy. I landed in Charlotte, uh, went to the meeting where I was to minister, but obviously in the shape I was in, I was beginning to crack. The facade was beginning to crack. Now, when I say facade, I don't mean hypocrisy. I was doing the best I knew how. Right. But the, the ability to hold it all together right. began to collapse. And uh, so to answer your question as quickly as I can, I went through a period of approximately a year from that time of nowhere to turn but God himself believing that God was my problem. <laughs> and the Lord allowed it. Now, I say this carefully, but the Lord had to let me go through this battle <laughs> so that at, at the other side of it, uh, I was completely free of this lie. 
Wow. But I had to pass through this valley of the shadow of death to get there. And I would wake up in the morning, and I remember, you know, the curse of the law in Deuteronomy. In morning you shall wish it was evening, and evening you'll wish it was morning. And, of course, I would read that, and I would say, see, I'm cursed. You know? yeah. I would never, I'd never think about Galatians. Christ has redeemed me from the curse. Right. But I would, I would wake up, and, and uh, the Holy Spirit would be singing to me. This is what held me together for a year. I would hear the voice of the Spirit in my head singing, The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His wow. mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. Great is thy faithfulness. My mercy's new every morning. I'll get you through today. Hmm. And I would yell and scream. And I would. I read. I read the book of Habakkuk. I threw my Bible across the room. Habakkuk hadn't got any answers. I read the book of Job. That didn't help a bit. <laughs> Just made me worse. I read uh, Asaph's cry in Psalm seventy-three about where is the goodness of God in the face of so right. much evil. And I said, and and then I saw the end of Asaph's. Statement, he said, until I went into the tabernacle, there I understood. Mm -hmm. And I laid my Bible. So when I say I threw my Bible, I am literally saying I threw my Bible. I'm not trying to be right. funny and I'm not trying to be blasphemous. I'm just saying right. I was that desperate. But I laid my Bible aside and I got on the floor and I said, I see now. Asaph got his answer, but he can't give it to me. Job got his answer, but he can't give it to me. Habakkuk got his answer, but he can't give it to me. I have to go to the same place they went. Wow. It has to be a personal revelation to my own heart. And that's the revelation of Scripture, that you go to God and get from God what you need. And I said, if I die here, I will die trusting that somehow you love me and you are good. Wow. And then the, then the light Praise began God. to turn on. There is goodness. You know, we always talk about the mystery of evil and suffering. And the, that's backwards. It's not the mystery of evil and suffering. I know where right. evil and suffering comes from. There's no mystery to it at all. Here's the mystery. That somehow goodness keeps rising out of the tomb. Wow. That's the While mystery. we yet were sinners. While you, yeah, exactly. That's the God mystery. God loved us. And that's, that the first light turned on in over a year in my heart and I knew when I got up off that floor I was on a journey I was walking behind the Lord mm. and he was leading and all this hyper predestinational misunderstanding of the sovereignty of God and especially the wrong concept of God's impassibility right. God's God's lack of emotion Never changes. The, you know, the, his unchangeableness somehow means that he is no. He's Allah. Right. He's the 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 unmoved mover. All that vanished, and I was in the arms of the most personal being who knew me and loved me and was going to walk me through this. The pain wasn't gone, but truth was there. So healing begins with the love of the Father. Yeah, healing began with the love of the Father. And then I began the long, arduous task of forgiving my father, forgiving my uh, molesters, and uh, receiving forgiveness for myself, which was much harder than forgiving my uh, molesters. Yeah, I know one of your mentors, Leanne Payne, uh, often makes the statement that the most difficult healing is all always and invariably the last hurdle and that is forgiving oneself that's right that's right it's amazingly how difficult it sounds so easy but that's it's right. amazingly difficult and you know some some theologians take issue with the term forgiving yourself they say it sounds too typical modern self-centered to, to use that term but when you understand the word forgive means to release the only logical way to say it is to forgive yourself to release yourself into the hands of the grace of god right and, Stop condemning yourself. Uh, Dr. Jack Hayford has a wonderful message that he teaches on uh, why sex sins are more damaging than other sins. And what he means by that is not that they are harder for God to forgive, but they are harder for us to release 
and to mm. receive forgiveness from. In 30 years of ministering to people, myself included, I never have had anybody say to me, you know, 20 years ago I cheated on my taxes and I just can't get over it. <laughs> or, you know, when I was a kid I stole cars, you know, and I got in a lot of trouble stealing people's cars. I just cannot seem to get over that. <laughs> but how many times have I had people, men and women, say to me, I just can't seem to forgive myself for the adultery. Wow. I just, how can I ever really be free of the memory of uh, molesting that child? You know? Wow. There's something about sexuality that goes to the core of our being. And, and so you're not talking about uh, a peripheral sin. You're talking right. about something that goes to the dynamic that makes you who you are. Right. Would you say... Clay, in your 30 years of ministry that in some sense, I don't want to oversimplify it, but in some sense, the answer to every need of the soul begins with experiencing the Father's love. I think that is exactly true. I was so jaded against fatherhood. Uh, you know, one of my former associates and good friend, Mario Bergner, tells the story of how his sister wrote him a letter to try to minister Christ's love to him and she wrote in the letter Mario our father in heaven is a loving father Mario was raised by a Nazi a man who was a committed Nazi throughout his life right and uh, Mario said he stared at the words loving and father and he couldn't get them to go together he said it might as well have said fish bicycle wow loving father. I had that same experience, uh, though as I've gotten older and been able to truly forgive my father, I understand now much of my father's brokenness was was pain in his own soul that right. needed mercy and grace. But, the curse of the fathers passed on is passed on to the sons who become fathers. Exactly so. And so many in our generation have grown up with fathers even though well-intentioned, who did not know the shalom of their own souls because they didn't have shalom with their fathers. And, and, when and that say, brokenness is passed on. That's right. And when you see, when you speak of the shalom of the father, the wholeness, the fullness of peace and blessing, which shalom in, involves. Uh, when I was in Israel, in, in 1977, I remember so distinctly, because I, I was in the beginnings of my worst torment, uh, but I heard a, a, little, a little child's voice crying, and I looked up, and I saw a little child running, and he was, he was yelling, Abba, Abba, Abba. Right. And in the arms of his father, you know, he stopped crying. Right. Well, now, when you hear the scriptures about Abba, Father, the Spirit. You read the scriptures, you, read, you hear the scriptures, you, you know, you get some out. Thing. Nothing could have given me the revelation I needed like that moment of seeing a, 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 a Hebrew father picking right. up his little boy in his arms. <clears throat> and I think so often, you know, the stereotypical concept of the Jewish mother and chicken soup, and you know, but it's the Jewish father, not taking away anything from the mother, but a Jewish father is a is a picture of the deepest kind of affection, the right. prodigal son, so called. But it's really the story of the the loving father. Right. We say that, <clears throat> but it's it's still the prodigal son story. That's all you hear about is the prodigal son story. Right. And and the whole emphasis that is supposed to be brought forth from that story, we still miss even when we preach it. And even if we grasp it intellectually. It's hard for our souls to receive it. Yeah. You know, uh, as we close out this first uh, session, uh, speaking of Israel, I want to tell you a little story. Uh, I think it was two years ago, Karen and I, on one of our extended uh, stays in Jerusalem, we were in the Jewish quarter in the old city. And there's a bookstore there, actually a, a gift shop there, uh, run by two Orthodox uh, brothers, Jewish brothers. And uh, one of whom often speaks to Christian groups, has a lot of interaction with them. And we were having a very lively discussion with him, as we always do. He has great respect for our ministry. And uh, because he's seen the fruit of it in some of the people that have come into his shop. 
And I said to him, you know, Moshe, the more I get into Jewish roots, which I've been studying now for 20 years, the more I'm convinced that at the end of the day, where it's really leading us is to a restoration of the fatherhood of God. And his face lit up. And he says, wow. He says, can I quote you on that? <laughs> it touched his heart because he said, this really is the basis of our unity as faithful Christians and faithful Jews is that we serve a God who ultimately is a loving father. But I'm really convinced, and even as recently as uh, a few weeks ago when we had the Havarim school here, I kept driving home this point that in a real sense, Jesus comes and teaches what? The kingdom of the Father. What the Father's character is like. What his ambition is. What his purpose for us is. How great is his love for us. Jewish roots at its best is not just the accumulation of information. It's drawing into intimacy with the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The God and Father of our Lord and Savior Jesus. It's drawing into an intimate relationship, so intimate that we can speak with the same affection that Jesus spoke to his Father when his spirit in us cries out, Abba, That's Father. Right. That's right. Let's continue this discussion in our next session, Clay. Thank you. Clay, I think some people might be confused we're talking here about the brokenness of the soul, and they would simply say, well, these people aren't really Christians. And yet, you know from experience, you said, talked about it on our very first tape, you were anointed powerfully of God to minister to others. You were saved, spirit-filled, operated in gifts of the Spirit, and yet there was enormous brokenness in you. I can testify to the same. My brokenness was in different directions but nonetheless, uh, brokenness. So how would you answer someone who would say, well, look, if our soul gets healed when we're born again, how can it be broken? I think the, the easiest way uh, to respond to that would be to say to them, and no, no condescension intended, are you telling me that at your conversion you were born full grown? Right. Are you telling me that at your conversion, you ceased all struggle and temptation and failure? Surely not. There are actually some denominations that teach that. Yeah. That you're sanctified completely. Sanctification. It's not a process. Right. It's a, a legal act. Right. And I've, I've had the privilege of being around some of those denominations. And I have friends who are wonderful friends in those groups. But behind closed doors, they start talking to me the same way everybody else does. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so it's just, a, it's just a misunderstanding of the meaning of sanctification. He who has begun a good work in us, Philippians 1.6, will finish it. You look, if all that matters is to be born again, then why didn't Jesus just come, make his way right up to Jerusalem, be handed over to the Romans and die an atoning death for us. Right. There was no need for him to spend three and a half years teaching, teaching. Exactly. Teaching at the end of the day is immaterial. Yeah. From this point of view of reality, all that matters is to get my soul saved and go to heaven. Well, it, it, uh, here we are again at the, 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 the judicial point of view. It's right. all judicial. If, see, if it's not relational, if it's all judicial, then that's an easy mindset to fall into. Well, if they're born again, they wouldn't do that. If they were born of God, they wouldn't have that problem. Yeah. And then you have extreme judgmental legalism. Exactly. Which is what so many have experienced, sadly, in church. Exactly. They can't be honest and real because they'll be rejected. Yeah. They can't enter into that wholeness, which comes in a walk. Jesus says, walk after me. Learn of me. Learn of me. You know, one analogy uh, I've used, very simplistic. Um, imagine you're, you're parked out here in, in the driveway to our, our home. And uh, 
as is our sound engineer here, Steve. And uh, imagine as you're backing out, you accidentally run into Steve's car and you put a big dent, uh, let's say, in the radiator of his car. I hope you're not driving your wife's car. She'd be very upset. If... <laughs> now, you can immediately get out of that car, come running in and say, Steve, I am so sorry. You know, I wasn't paying attention. I was distracted. My cell phone rang and I just inadvertently damaged your car. Will you please forgive me? Now, Steve, being a righteous dude, as I know he is, would say, Clay, I understand. I, I forgive you. You're forgiven at that moment. But now if you just jump in your car and leave quickly, the fact is, even though you're forgiven and he has forgiven you, he still got a wound in his car. Yeah. That if that wound is not taken care of, so to speak, it's going to cause damage and eventually even breakdown to him. What needs to happen is that car now needs to be taken to a healer, right. to someone who's expert in repairing automobiles. And if your repentance bears fruit, you'll say, look, I'll take responsibility for this and I'll pay for the restitution of your automobile. By analogy, many of us get saved. Thank God. God forgives us. We repent. We, we authentically repent. But that doesn't mean all those dents in our fenders and radiators suddenly vanish. And if you don't believe that, what are you going to do with the majority of, of Paul's writings? And, and the, the, what, right. are the, what are the pastoral epistles addressing? Right. What, what is Peter addressing? What does Paul mean when he says to the Ephesians, oh, you who stole, steal no more? Who's he talking to when he speaks to the Corinthians and says, you know, you ought not get drunk at the Lord's table and you ought to deal with this incest problem. Right. And you're misusing the gifts of the Spirit because you're playing with your old occult roots instead of moving in proper gifts. What do you do with all of that? You know, and when I deal with pastors who say to me, well, you know, we don't, thankfully, we don't have those kinds of problems in our church. <laughs> They, that happens fewer and fewer times, by the way. Yeah, it's like the leader of uh, Iran saying, we don't have any homosexuals <laughs> in Iran. <laughs> yeah, we don't have any in Iran. <laughs> but uh, I like your analogy uh, very much because, among other things, it conveys to me that when you were born again as a child, and I remember that so vividly, it was really a childlike experience for me. Um, it's important now how you are nurtured. It's important the community of faith that you have. It's important the parents that you have, the literature that you read, the words that you hear spoken over you. You know, one of the things I've so respected about your ministry, which I heard said many years ago and I've experienced personally, is that real healing, all real healing, comes in the presence of the Father, which you yourself hear him speak unto you. Affirmation, forgiveness. It's not just an intellectual proposition, it's a fatherly affirmation. Exactly so. And what happens is, uh, people have pictures in their imagination that are tormenting and they will give that credence and call that viable. But let someone suggest that they get the, in the presence of the Lord and see what the Lord will say to them. Right. They, they relegate that as, that's just my imagination. Oh. I just made that up. Oh. And I say to them, my friend, if you're so good at making up affirmations, then why don't you do it all the time? <laughs> if they're just made up and you're just making this up, then keep making them up. But the fact is that's obviously, uh, they can't do that. <clears throat> the, the, the idea of listening to God and hearing him speak a healing word to the heart 
has been labeled among many Christians as mysticism. And in their definition of mysticism is, might as well say, occultism. Right. So it's like physical healing. And, you know, in the scriptures, Jesus heals. But in evangelicalism, God gives you cancer to make you humble. You know, that's that's the, the switch off that we've well, developed. Yeah. And same way, uh, in the scripture, uh, if you then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God the Father. Set your imagination on those things. Whatsoever things are pure. Whatsoever things are true or pure, lovely, think on these things. Think on these things. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall lack for nothing. He leads me beside still waters. This is painting a picture in my mind. But somehow, by the time it gets to the Western mindset, the imagination is relegated to the occult, and static reasoning is elevated as... Supreme spirituality. spirituality. Our spiritual giants are systematic theologians. And so you end up with seminary students that I often encounter who can read the scriptures in three languages, but their mind is a desert of emotional bereftness. Wow. And so they're ending up in immoral relationships or addictive behaviors because they are no matter how much they want to live in their intellect, they are human beings. God created them to be sensual beings and relational beings. Right. And part of that has to do with the imagination. Sanctified mind. And because they're only sanctifying their mind in the the left brain, they're only sanctifying... uh, in gathering information, gathering right. information. After a while, the weight of that information becomes too heavy, and they collapse, and they end up going out and getting into all kinds of illicit behaviors. Or worse, sitting in a library somewhere until they just d- disintegrate. There's a young minister that uh, I've had the privilege over the years of speaking into his life, and um, I remember him telling me a few years ago when he was at one of the most prestigious uh, seminaries in America for evangelicals, that um, one day his, uh, a friend that he respected a lot, who was working on a PhD, he was just working on a master's degree, but his friend noticed he was reading a book by Henry Nowlin. And he says, why in the world are you reading that? And he, my, my friend said, well, you know, it really nourishes my soul. And he said, I tried to read him once. I couldn't make heads or tails out of it. And he said, uh, if I want spiritual nourishment, he says, I just exegete a text in the original Greek. You know, it's mind-boggling. The, the, the desert in our souls and imaginations. I have watched such people in my conferences who I usually think are there because some family member forced them to come, uh, sit out there and take notes while people all over the building are weeping. It's like the room is being rained on and they have up a spiritual umbrella uh, that is on top of their head. And they're taking notes and going through their Bible and writing down Scripture, Scripture, Scripture. They're like people who always read the menu and can even translate the menu into other languages, but they never eat the meal. They don't partake. Do you know one of the benefits, I think, of Hebraic renewal that has attracted so many people is the fact that it does help sanctify your mind. Much of the church is fearful of the mind. And... You get into Jewish roots and you learn that study can actually be an act of worship. Right. And then this, this transition from the mind to the spirit or the soul is very transparent. Right. That intense study can be a spiritual experience that leads you right into prayer and then right out of prayer back into study. That's appealing to people. The sanctification of the mind. But they haven't heard what you're sharing with us, Clay, about how the imagination is part of that mind that needs to be sanctified. Well, I'm glad you brought that back up because when we talked about this previously, I remember we talked about the separation between the head and the heart. 
And quite often people think, well, the head is study and the heart is prayer. And that's not true at all. Study can, study is a, is a nourishing of the heart. And this is where you get into the linguistic difficulties right. of head and heart. Right. Uh, and we know that mind, heart, spirit, soul, will, imagination. One of the reasons various translations translate these words differently is because they have a large uh, circle of meaning. Yeah. Because we are mysterious. We are spirit That's beings. Right. We're we, not little compartments. We're not compartments. We're, we're not ordering parts to a car that can exactly. be put in a box. We're talking about living beings created in the image of the Creator God. So, of course, we're going to have mystery. And, and in fact, one, one man that I read recently says, if your theology makes no room for mystery, if your study does not leave you with more questions than answers, you have an inadequate view <laughs> yeah. of the whole picture. Everything should lead you to a point of mystery and wonder and worship and a broader scope of desire to know. Of awe. And awe. Do you know, I thought of this earlier and I forgot to mention it. I think some people would say, well, you guys have completely ignored all the Bible says about fear of God, fear of the Lord, not understanding that, for example, as Moses says in a text in Exodus to Israel, encouraging them to draw nigh to the mountain and to hear from God, he says, don't be afraid, come near and learn the fear of the Lord. Yeah, it's one of my favorite verses. The fear of the Lord is this reverential awe with appropriate responsiveness. The fear of the Lord, of course, he's holy. I mean, I've taught on that for many years. He's utterly holy. He's um, unalterably opposed to evil in every form, and it will be and is judged. That's why that judgment of our evil had to be placed on Messiah's back. But in his holiness, he himself was in Christ Jesus reconciling the world. He was the agent bringing about the reconciliation, not some tribal deity that has to be appeased as an angry God. You see, this is something I wish we could have spent more time on. I'm glad we brought it back up. Most Christians believe that God is an angry deity who must be appeased by blood sacrifice. His wrath must be appeased by blood. Right. And listen, if that is your understanding and there is no other revelation, that's all you've got, there's no way you're going to draw near to him. No, absolutely not. You're going to get out of that courtroom as soon as you can. That's right. Thanks very much, Your Honor. I'll see you in the world to come. Yeah, exactly. And hopefully not too close. But you know, here again, even when you say the word blood, this is in Hebrew, evokes images of atonement, of sacrifice, of life. The life is in the blood. Right. So when Messiah shed his blood, and by the blood of Christ we're saved, it means by his life, the giving of his life. In the Hebrew imagination, it evokes these wonderful images, but when we say blood, we take it very literally as if some kind of paganism. We've got to appease a vengeful God by killing somebody. Yep, like the Aztecs. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's so uh, daunting, the hurdles we have to overcome. That's why the Hebraic renewal, I'm convinced, is a work of God's Spirit, because it's a process. You know, one, it, we're not to engage in envy, but one thing I am envious of are a lot of these young men that I have the honor of being a positive influence in their lives today, some of whom are still in seminary, some of whom have just begun their ministries. And I think, wow, if only I had heard of this when I first came into the kingdom. You know, I know. If only I had spent all my lifetime studying this rather than Indian philosophy and yeah. Western philosophy. I mean, I'm not neglect. I'm not trying to denigrate that. God has redeemed that in my life. It 
forms part of who I am. But as children, this is coming back to family again, how important it is that this view of shalom be imprinted upon them, imprinted upon them as they grow up. Then it's not some dramatic uh, reconstruction project you have to engage in when they're 25 or 35 or 40 years old. Say, you need to unlearn all this stuff you learned and relearn it. It's a natural growth. It's a wondrous thing. Uh, that, that puts me in mind of a letter that I received just a few days before uh, I came here to be with, with you all from a young man who's in his early 40s, raised in an evangelical home, and uh, has been very, very careful to behave himself. He was the model child, the model teenager, the model young adult, and he came across my path when he was in his mid-30s. I've known him about 8 or 10 years and I've always been concerned about the fact that he was the model child and the model adult and concerned that not that not I don't believe for one minute that a child has to break out and go crazy and go into rebellion and ruin his life in order to um, uh, uh, individuate. Right. I don't believe that for a moment. No. It's foolishness. But I was concerned that he he exhibited the behavior that I see in some evangelical families where, uh, Christian uh, children are so hothouse overprotected right. that they don't know that there are options. I don't necessarily mean sinful options. I just mean they don't right. know anything but with their world. Then they get exposed to it and they, they have not developed the proper instincts and discernment to know how to negotiate the new stimuli. Wow. And they go, they go berserk. And they go crazy. And well, this young man in his now early forties is beginning to experience tremendous temptations and pressures and emotions that he doesn't know what to he do. He doesn't know how to deal with. And the only way he can get well is to go through the process he's going through. Uh, I mean, I'm not saying he's got to go sin. I'm not saying no, he's I got understand. to go destroy his life. But the only way he can get well is to. I mean, he's very angry. He's understandably angry. He doesn't know who to be angry at, so he's angry at everybody. And uh, and he'll tell me when we uh, when we converse about it. He says, "I had I had my life all in place where it, it worked, it functioned, and now nothing works. And you remove wow. one part, and the whole thing caves in." And I thought he's describing a robot. He's describing the right. Frankenstein's body. You know, not born of the spirit and growing like a child, but sewn together and jolted with electricity. Right. And now it's falling apart. And he, he's got to fall apart. It's a theological construct. Yeah. It's not a living tree. Yeah. Do you know, Clay, in um, the best of Judaism, and I, I don't wish to convey a kind of an idealistic, naive view of Judaism. Right. But in the best of Jewish teaching, the greatness of a true sage is not seen in the yeshiva, nor even in the giving of his commentary on the Torah. Do you know where his greatness is seen? In his home. In his home, yeah. If you ever have the privilege of being invited into one of those homes, and you see the way he relates to his wife, and he relates to his children, and he relates to guests who come into the home. Then you get a glimpse of his greatness. Because the understanding of the sages was that the greater the scholarship, the greater the piety. Not this dichotomy of human Not this heart. dichotomy. And yet, by contrast, and I, I'm just making the contrast, not to judge, but I'm, it actually grieves me because I, I, I know some of this from my own experience. If we look to our community of faith as evangelical Christians, I suspect you can document far more even than I, from my experience, that the very people who know the most about the scriptures 
who live a life full-time, so-called, of ministry, pastors and ministers, often have deep levels of brokenness in their own souls and in their homes. They know the most, but in the most fundamental arena of their own soul and their relation, covenant relationship with wife and children, they're the most broken. We even call their kids PKs, yeah. a derogatory term meaning a rebellious, out-of-control child. Right. I heard recently of a study, it was shocking, I've even now forgotten something like 60% of pastors who were questioned said that within the last month they had viewed pornography. Right. Some of whom literally in their office view pornography under the stress of their situation before they even go out in, into the pulpit. At the same place, the, the same spot where they prepared their sermon. Yeah. Cooked on the same stove, so to speak. If this doesn't call mm. for a healing of the soul. Yeah, certainly. Let's get real. And there's nothing more frightening to me than a man in that case who will build a construct of theological self-protection. Yeah to defend himself against what he needs most. But it's a construct everyone else shares. So even if he is inclined to want to confess, he's terrified to do so. That's right. It will ruin him. Well, you know, Jimmy Swaggart said uh, when his terrible fall occurred, he said, I had no one to turn to. Now, I, I know friends of mine who reacted to that and said, well, yeah, that's a cop-out. But the, no, I, I come from that world. I grew up in that part of the country. And it's not hard for me to believe that in the circles he ran in, uh, there was no one who would have treated him with no, gentleness and love and care. Quite honestly, it's like uh, superstar athletes. All these guys are critical. They're com competitors. Yeah. If you can get something dirty on your competitor, oh, yeah. it, it makes your ministry greater. Yeah, exactly. So that's exactly what happened. It was one of his competitors that right. blew the whistle on him. Because it's In your experience, Clay, 30 years of ministry, do you find this uh, sexual dysfunction among evangelical Christians on the increase? Or do you think it's always been this way? Uh, no, I think it's definitely on the increase because of the disintegration of the family, the disintegration of image and symbol, and the proliferation of demonic symbols through media. It's definitely on the increase. Our capacity for sin is always there, of course, but the stimuli has reached a level of unbelievable proportions uh, that now, uh, we, I mentioned uh, in a previous session, Children can download this this poison on their on their iPod, on their iPods and telephones. Yeah. Uh, there's no way of protecting our children from this by isolation. We are forced to begin to obey what we've ignored too many years. We are forced to begin to parent our children right. and to love them and relate to them and equip them with discernment and discretion and self-control by love and impartation of truth. So if there are people listening here who, um, men, for example, who are struggling with these issues, uh, women who are struggling in their marriage, uh, how do they begin to grow in this uh, healing and restoration of the soul? Well, you know, women have become very angry after after years of not being met and honestly interacted with by their husbands, uh, long about the mid-1970s, we saw the rise of the feminist movement. By the mid-1980s, it had grown into a gargantuan proportions. And now we have a general malaise of, of sexual impotence caused by the loss of identity. Mm. See, it's exactly like we talked about before. The loss of identity produces a loss of relationship and the loss of being and the loss of knowing how to function. So I, I'm dealing all the time with men and women in their early 20s to early 30s, some as late as early 40s, who are still stuck in an adolescent fear of relating. They're wow. not necessarily immoral. Right. They're just... They're like adolescents of the 50s and 60s who are not sexually active, but they're not pursuing marriage because they're not growing up. 
Wow. So some of these people did marry, you know, in the last decade or two decades, and 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 they're they're sitting there in marriage, wondering why it's not working and wondering why that they don't relate, and it's a it's a daunting task. But what Mary and I try to do, what we're doing, uh, we have a discipling program, not a program, it's relational. We won't becomes a program we'll probably quit it <laughs> yeah. uh, but we we have 10 couples that we relate to directly we're discipling them in marriage in loving each other in being honest with each other in telling each other the truth we're not arriving not by a long shot but we are long past the point of uh of of uh just playing the game and they're beginning to open up and talk about their sexual dysfunction and talk about their childhood experiences that have deformed their ability to be intimate and the difference between sexual intimacy and relational intimacy and uh, pulling down some of these false concepts that men want sex and so they'll be loving and women won't love so they'll give sex. I mean, that's an easy truism, but it really exalts a kind of dichotomy that's unhealthy. Right. Uh, it, it gives men permission to be sexual animals without a heart and women permission to be romantic bubbleheads without sexual fulfillment. And it's all wrong. And so we jump into that. But uh, the first thing I had to do with them was I had to gain their confidence by letting them know I was, I was with them for the long haul. Right. The second thing I had to say was I'm, I'm with you for the long haul and I refuse to let you sink into Sunday schoolish religious euphemistic talking mm. we're going to talk about gut level real stuff mm. then i had to i had to hold back the dragon i, I turned loose because all the women wanted to talk about the deepest most difficult things in their marriage immediately and all the men wanted to jump out the window on their head right and then shoot me later right so it's it's been a it's been a really roller coaster ride of loving struggle but we are now emerging, we're seeing these couples emerge now as mature couples who love each other and are raising godly children. Oh, that's and, wonderful. And, and, and I, I talked to them about a long-term vision. I said, "Let me. here's my long-term vision. It's not to hold on to each other for as long as we can and hope for the rapture. <laughs> my long-term vision is that your children and your children's children and your children's children's children walk this out because they have been given an inheritance. You know, the Bible says a godly man reserves an inheritance for his children and his children's children. Wow. What is the godly inheritance that we are supposed to hand down to our children? It's not money per se, but it's the rich. You know, Jesus said, if, you, if I can't trust you with filthy lucre, I can't trust you with the greater riches. What are the greater riches? Money is just basic. The greater riches are what we're talking about. And so they're learning how to bless their children. I'll give you, let me give you two examples. Two of my men in those groups, um, both are fathers of 15-year-old boys. They both separately discovered that their boys were looking at porn on online. They came to me separately right. and said, well, you know, I'm, I'm brokenhearted, what do I do? And I said, what, what, did you, what would you have wanted your father to do? Hmm. And they both had tears in their eyes. Oh. And they both, they didn't answer me. They got right. up and went and did it. Right. And then they told me later what they did. They went to their sons. They put their arms around them. And they sat them down in their arms around them. And they said, I want to talk to you about what's happened. And I want you to tell me the truth. Both boys burst in tears. Both boys told their fathers how sorry they were right. that they had done this. And both boys separately said, I need your help. I can't control this. Wow. Praise God. So not as punitive action, right. but as wisdom. Right. He said, I want you to give me your cell phone. I'm going to get rid of the cell phone. We're taking the computer out of the house. I mean, they, they had the wisdom not to have the computer in their children's room. I hope everybody listening to me has enough sense not to put a computer in your child's room with no interaction and no supervision. But anyway, they said, we're just going to take it out of the house. Because, you know, sometimes we're away from the house. We can't police you. I don't want you policed. See, I don't want to manage sin. 
I want your heart to outdo this. And, and they, they both reported to me uh, that uh, both boys have come and said, Dad, I don't want my phone back. Wow. Both boys have come and said, I love being home. I don't feel this tension. Both boys have stopped being antsy. Both boys want to go and do things with their dad. Wow. Remarkable. It's a wonderful example, I believe, of what the prophet Malachi said would occur in the last days. That with this renewal, the hearts of the fathers will be turned to the sons. We've been talking all about the father, but once you get in right relationship with the father, he turns your heart towards your sons, towards your children. That's right. And not just your children, but their children. We've got to think generationally here, That's and right. not just individually saving my soul or getting my 12-year-old daughter's soul saved, but of seeing the kingdom of God advance here and now. This is what God is so passionate about. Everything you're talking about, Clay, the healing of the soul, for me, is nothing less than the kingdom advancing. That's exactly, that's a much more accurate term to me. The kingdom is God's redemptive power at work in our lives. And bring healing, restoration, renewal, encouragement. And you see, train up a child in the way the child's created tendency shows up to be. What that means is, if you've got a kingdom vision, and you're not just thinking about getting them saved so they can go to heaven right. or getting raptured any minute. Then you recognize your son is a very prolific mathematician, and he's got a he's got a real bent toward numbers. And you you start praying into that and blessing that and affirming that and fully expecting him to go and do something in the healing of the world that will be beneficial. Not a preacher. We don't need too many more preachers. <laughs> But we sure need godly mathematicians and godly businessmen and godly architects and godly swimming coaches and godly farmers and on and on and on I could go, right. you see. Because so, all of life is to come under the kingship of Yeshua. All of it comes under his the kingship. The arts, culture, business. Exactly. And so you're not, what happens in a, in a family where spirituality is is all in this narrow, dark, religious world. you got this vibrant teenager who's alive and wanting to experience right. life, and then he has to go to church. Right. Is it any wonder that by the time he gets a driver's license, he drives as fast away from church as he can? Right. But what happens when you get him in a group of other young people whose parents are like-minded, and everything is vibrant and full of life? Yeah, and they put together a, a, a soccer team that's, that's winning, because the reason they're winning is not because God gives them supernatural power to beat everybody. It's right. because they love each other and they love the game and they love life and they just naturally, therefore, have a greater ability to perform because they're happy. Right. And so they win championships. You know, I want to encourage people listening that if they will simply make that choice to say, we want to walk in this way, that God the Father will rush to them because this is so close to his heart. I don't know if I ever told you, Clay, um, years ago I was ministering in uh, Auckland, New Zealand, quite a large church. And many times I've had the experience of not knowing for sure what I was supposed to speak on until maybe just even as the service began. I've actually had the experience I've gone to the pulpit, had two sets of notes there. I couldn't get any direction. And literally, I've, there have been times when I have prayed, not knowing what I'm supposed to do next. And after I pray, I realize, okay, go with this. This night, I had all my notes prepared. I thought what I was supposed to do it was a Sunday night service, large crowd, over a thousand people. I got up there, prayed, and immediately knew I was supposed to tell the story of the parable of the merciful father, the prodigal, which... And never crossed my mind to do. And so I just set my notes aside and I just began telling this wonderful story. And um, the next night at the seminar, 
I had a father come up to me. He said, you have no idea how you changed my life last night, how you changed my life. He said, yesterday afternoon, our teenage son, who had left home two years ago, gotten into drugs and illicit sexual relationships, came home. And he said, I was so torn. I'm so angry on the one hand, but I don't want to do the wrong thing, but I don't know what to do. And he said to my, he said, I said to my wife, well, let's go into church and we'll talk with him when we come back. He came to church. So great is the father's love that even if 999 people didn't need to hear that message that night, one. There was a father who needed to hear it. He said, after I heard your message, I went home. I put my arms around my son. I said, welcome home. I love you so much. It changed a life. Praise God. Now that's the love of the father. And we are desperate to know that we are individual. I know that one exactly. of the things we all try to correct is the hyper-individuality. <clears throat> individualism. Not individuality, but individualism. And yet, individual individualness is part of how we were created. We were created for the I-thou relationship. I can't be a face in a crowd right. and be who I was created to be. Praise and boy, God. does that story underscore that on a cosmic level. The Father loves us with such incredible love. Lord, teach us how to receive your love.